Welcome to Milk and Bourbon, Episode 3. Some slight changes this time. I originally was supposed to do a combined podcast with two close friends of mine, and we were waiting on one piece of equipment that I had ordered one month prior, and it did not come in on time. So had to make some quick changes. Um, so for this episode, Episode 3, The Joker Psychology, it's um, written by... 15, 20 different people with multiple letters at the end of their, end of their name, MD, PhD. But it's all brought together by a Dr. Travis Langley, who um, has been a part of this DC universe for an extended amount of time and is very accomplished outside of comic books, obviously. His doctorate is not in um, the detection comics or the Joker or Batman. However... He does spend a considerable amount of time researching them. And when I first picked up this book, I didn't know what to expect. It introduces a ton of concepts that I wasn't familiar with. And that's kind of what I've been trying to go for with these, with these podcasts is attacking gaps in my own knowledge. And this one, psychology, is a large gap. Something I've always been interested in how the brain functions, but I had never reached out to this portion of it. So this was an interesting foray for me. Uh, so I chose the book because I loved the Joker. I posted a picture on Instagram a little bit ago earlier this week talking about this upcoming podcast, and it was me in the Joker costume with full makeup on. And that was not the first time that I was the Joker for Halloween. Um, and I'm a Joker pretty much every day of my life. So I, I like the character. I love the character, in fact. Uh, not a very deep consumer beyond what is the big screen of the Joker. Obviously, 2011, Dark, The Dark Knight, where uh, Heath Ledger is playing the Joker, was a huge factor for me choosing the Joker as one of my favorite characters. I loved that performance. Um, but he's not the only incredible performer. Mark Hamill, the guy that played uh, Luke Skywalker, he was the voice actor and has been the voice actor for the Joker for I don't know, 30 years. So he's incredible, and everyone mentions him, uh, and his name's synonymous with the Joker. So that's why I chose the book. Uh, another point before I dive into it, there's a certain superficiality that, that humans kind of engage in, at least Americans, that, I, that I've been exposed to, where we don't really delve deep into our media. Uh, for instance, I was talking with someone about... Um, the song I Took a Pill in Ibiza by Mike Posner, specifically the Sieb remix, where the beat is upbeat and fun, but the lyrics are dark, incredibly dark. We don't notice that. People are, are riding around in their Jeeps with the tops down playing this song, and it's this guy talking about how he's desperately trying to fit in and remain relevant and how he's failing. <laughs> and it's the same with things like The Joker, where we see a clown, but we don't really understand fully like what these writers have created this man to be. So I love the Joker. I should not. Uh, and I'll mention in a bit some of the things that he's done that aren't on the big screen, and some of them that you might have just seen and kind of glossed over because 
you're, you're so affixed to just the clown look. So I chose this, and this was something that, I, that led into one of the great quotes that were throughout this book. One of the writers for The Joker, his name is Dennis O'Neill, he said that initially he was, he was kind of acting somewhat cavalier with his writing for The Joker because it had been several years, I think 20, 25 years, there was a period where The Joker hadn't committed a killing, and he was just doing these madcap, intricate plans to try to convince people that he was insane, but ultimately he wasn't killing anybody. And uh, Dennis O'Neill decided after some time, he said, um, I realize that the comic book and other media characters are all the equivalent to modern-day folklore. And this knowledge brought me or caused me to start, stop acting so cavalier towards the Joker and his writing of him. So it became increasingly more dark. The character became increasingly more complex. And I'll touch on the phases of the Joker throughout the years since his inception. But I digress. Uh, the first founding principle for the Joker is what constitutes evil. And I don't know if it was philosophers, sociology, it was probably a combination of the lot of them, but they came up with what's known as the dark tetrad. tetrad. And it's four principles that a person has, has to have in order to be capable of being truly evil. The first one is psychopathy. And that's a personal profile notable for superficial charm, deceitfulness, antisocial behavior, lack of remorse, restricted emotion, egocentrism, poor insight, poor planning, and impersonal sex life. Added, that, added to that is narcissism, which is just the excessive interest or admiration of oneself. Machiavellianism, which is a personality trait where a person's so fixated on his own goals that he's willing to manipulate be deceitful, deceive, and exploit others in order to achieve those goals of his. And then what was added later to make him truly evil was sadism, which a lot of people associate with sexual sadism, but it's just sadism in general, where that's the tendency to derive any sort of pleasure from inflicting pain, suffering, or humiliation on others. And I think it's pretty clear that the Joker has all of those things required to become truly evil. <clears throat> and Joker's origin is actually, it, he wasn't just created out of nothing. Uh, some common factors or some common themes that he carries with him were inspired by um, age-old conceptions of characters. For instance, Loki, who's been made popular by Marvel Comics, uh, has been around for centuries, and uh, the Joker derives some of his mannerisms directly from Loki. Another more contemporary uh, source is Edgar Allan Poe and the characters he continues to create. Um, one thing he likes to call a lot of his characters were imps of the perverse. And what's the Joker but not an imp of the perverse? And some stories such as um, Pit and Pendulum and The Mask of Amontillado, uh, you can see if you read those short stories, and I ended up looking into them after I read this book, you can see some common themes between what the Joker does and what these characters in Edgar Allan Poe's uh, short stories are doing. And if you haven't read Edgar Allan Poe at all, 
you should because it is some unsettling shit and it's fun it's that is great writing written by a very flawed character human uh who's just also just happens to be genius so incredible writer very flawed man but very interesting read regardless and i wanted to read this quote from hp lovecraft who is a, a notable horror writer and i think this is the exact same feelings that the joker has and i and the book mentions him in, in being an inspiration to the original, original creators of the Joker. H.P. Lovecraft says, Cosmos, the cosmos is a mindless vortex, a seething ocean of blind forces in which the greatest joy is unconsciousness and the greatest pain, realization. And this leads to the different types of Jokers because there are some very noticeable, clear lines between uh, writers and generations of the Joker. And... The, the author, well, the editor of this book and all the individual authors had a tough time deciding which one they were going to apply their, their psychoanalysis to. Um, instead, they just chose all of them. So I'm going to list them off for you. Uh, so he was conceived in 1940. Initially, they were just going to keep him on for one episode and kill him off, but the editor said, hey, there's something to this character. There's something that could have some longevity, and they ended up keeping it. But the writers, the writers and the artists that originally created the Joker only intended to keep him on for one episode or one comic book. And so that Joker from 1940 to 1942 was labeled um, Ace of Knaves. And he was a completely sane killer who just took special delight in killing. And then after 1942, maybe due to the World War II or, or what have you, but there was a lot of hoopla surrounding... Uh, having killing happening so happening so often in cartoons. So for thir I think almost thirty years, from forty two to sixty nine, uh, the Joker didn't kill, didn't kill a single person. And this this guy was labeled the clown prince of crime. He was more focused on some madcap, very intricate plans to upset the balance of Gotham City. The third phase of the Joker, the King of Arkham Asylum from 73 to 86. This was, I believe, when Dennis O'Neill started writing for him. That's when he started killing again, and he was written more to be a completely insane person undergoing psychosis during this time, and he started killing um, exorbitantly. Which brings me to the phase from 86 to 2000. This Joker, the Harlequin of Hate, he started killing characters close to Batman. So he started maiming, he maimed Batgirl, he killed the second Robin, he almost attempted or almost succeeded in killing the first Robin. And he was, he was driving uh, Commissioner Gordon insane during this time. It, he, he got decidedly, decidedly darker in his, his way of killing. And then there was the Agent of Chaos, and this was the Heath Ledger phase, but it started in 2001, which is eerily lined up with the terror attacks of 9-11. He was a terrorist during this phase, 2001 to 2018. Well, really, even including Joaquin Phoenix. Um, he, he had some terroristic tendencies. So they're taking into account all of these characters. One thing that I wanted to note is that with each new writer, uh, the Joker was taken a little more seriously as a, as a supervillain, as the chief um, antithesis of Batman himself, and in fact, writers today will say that Batman wouldn't still is, exist if it weren't for the Joker, and vice versa. 
And that's, that's what leads me to my next point, is the duality of things. Every superhero needs a supervillain in order to become a superhero. Day needs night. Um, yin and yang, good and bad. Matter and antimatter even. There's this dualism to almost everything. And this leads to a quote from Bob Kane, who was one of the original artists for the Joker. He said, Bill, mentioning Bill Finger, the writer, Bill and I were kicking around ideas about a maniacal killer who would play perennial life and death jokes on Batman that would test his mettle and ingenuity to outwit him. So just reinforcing the Joker's role in Batman's life was heavy. And the focus of really every, ever since the Joker was created, that's been the focus of of the Batman series is how is the Batman going to react to the Joker's manipulations. <laughs> and this leads to a concept brought up by Carl Jung. Carl Jung was a, a psychologist in the early 20th century who worked with Sigmund, Sigmund Freud for many years actually until he uh, publicly ridiculed Freud's idea of the Oedipus complex, which initially I, I'd heard of it, but the Oedipus complex is in reference to a phase in a young child's life from three to six where they start having sexual feelings for the opposite sex parent. And Carl Jung didn't jive with that. I feel you on that, brother. That shit's gross. And he publicly ridiculed Freud's idea. And that caused Freud to split with him. And they were no longer friends, no longer co-workers. And this is actually when Carl Jung really started coming out with some enduring ideas in the psychological realm. And one of those was the collective unconscious of mankind, that there's just some force, underlying thing that we all feel, all, all understand, but we, don't, we can't really put our th fingers on it because it's in the subconscious. And so driven from that unconscious, there's this um, many-myth or, or monomyth, or the, it's called the hero's journey, if you want to look it up, but it's there's always a common theme to what we create in our media for these stories. These fictional stories all have these certain aspects to them, and, and any successful story is going to continue to have those things. And one of the things is um, Jungian archetypes. So these are like the character types that are in shows, and usually they're manifested in a pure form in shows, but humans also have these archetypes. They just have a mixture of several of them. There's the anima animus, which is really just the male-female um, duality there. Some more dualism for you. There's the shadow, which is what Batman represents. He's kind of the id to your ego. And there's some other ones, the sage. Um, and then there's the trickster, which is a warped kind of degraded version of the shadow. It's the flip side of the coin. It's, it's the shadow if they choose to be bad. The shadow can be a good thing. Um, it could drive you to do positive things, but if it's warped, twisted, it becomes the jokester, which is the joker. And I like this quote. It, it mentions that struggle of the shadow to maintain its good purpose and keep it from becoming the jokester, or the trickster, sorry. And it says, For what is Batman if not an effort to master the chaos that sweeps our world and attempt to control death itself? So if you're not familiar with the Batman, that's really his whole purpose is to try to bring order back to this chaos that is Gotham City, whereas the trickster, Joker, uses order to create chaos. So they're kind of antithesis of, the, of each other, and they're required, at least in, in popular culture, 
for them both to be there. And that's why they both never kill each other, because they need each other in a weird, screwed up kind of way. So Joker's main themes, what is he all about? Uh, One quote that is from the Joker, life is crazy and meaningful at once, and when we do not laugh over the one aspect and speculate over the other, life is exceedingly drab, and everything is reduced, reduced to the littlest scale. And this was a quote that I was like, man, why is this in DC Comics? Who, who are we teaching here? And, and it made me think of another quote in a completely different cartoon, if you will, and it's in Pokemon, and it's after Mewtwo has devised this plan to destroy humankind, and someone proves him wrong, and he says this. He says, I see now that the circumstances of one's birth are irrelevant. Is what you do with the gift of life that determines who you are. I was like, man, this is, why are we, (laughs) these are kids shows. And I I just realized that it's the writer's attempt to create or inject, I guess, some some of their life lessons in in hopes that people will pick it up and internalize it themselves. And I think that's, that goes back to my very, almost my very first point is that we kind of take things superficially and I feel like we're missing the point oftentimes with what these shows are trying to do. And these shows are ultimately written by very intelligent grown men and women. We kind of just blindly soak it in. And we don't, I don't know if we actually ever take full notice of the, the messages and the themes that are being taught to us um, almost subconsciously. And this leads to another common theme with the Joker, his belief in humankind's vanity and the uselessness overall of the human race. He kind of sees us as, as a, a virus to earth. And he, he, not only does he see us as a virus to earth, but in the grand scheme of time and, and space, he sees us as useless. Um, he mentions the randomness and the ugliness of, human, of the human collective. He says he feels he's alone and trying to bring light to this fact that existence is futile. And he wants to enlighten people. And his own, like, kind of screwed up brain, he's doing a service to people. And then finally, um, it was mentioned in the book, humor relies on many of the same elements of incongruity and surprise that horror does. Perhaps why the Joker is truly amazing at being a villain is that he can do both one and the other simultaneously, where he's both humorous and horrific at once. And I think that's why he's an enduring character. And this leads into like the actual diagnoses that these guys try to drive for the Joker. And the first thing I wanted to mention is that there's... And this is something that I didn't know beforehand, but there's a difference between personality disorders and mental disorders. And the, the layman's way of describing this is that with personality disorders, it's like, a, it's like a rose-colored tint to how you see things. You just see things slightly differently. Whereas with a mental disorder, it's what you see. It's creating something out of nothing. So that's the kind of fine line you draw between the two. And that's what they're trying to drive at, is that the Joker's not psychotic, he's psychopathic, which is, again, that difference between a personality disorder and a mental disorder. And they go on to try to explain 
well, how does, how does the Joker become who he is? Is he a sociopath? Did something happen to him that drove him to insanity? Or is he a psychopath? Or was he born that way? Um, psychopaths are, are born, sociopaths are made. And the argument really greatly favors, at least in this book, that he's a psychopath. He, he was, it was already there. He already had all the, the pieces necessary to become truly evil. And, and I wanted to be clear in, in not trying to make this a, a, a smash campaign for people that have mental disorders or social uh, disorders, personality disorders. And one person that I wanted to bring up is uh, a mathematician named John Nash. He was the inspiration for A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe. And uh, around 1959, he became increasingly more paranoid and was eventually um, diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. And he would routinely, by 1964, he started hearing voices, and shortly thereafter, he started seeing things. And he would stop his work. And, for instance, he, he came up with game theory, which is essentially how humans make snap decisions in complex environments. And there's a ton of math to it. It's in incredibly difficult to understand as, as a person, just a regular layman as I am. And I can only imagine what, how much more difficult this became as a schizophrenic. But he would, he would stop his work and ask his coworkers if something that he was seeing was real. And he, became, he was able to detach himself from the situation so well that he could start to determine when he was having these hallucinations. And he would coach himself through it to where he was fully functional by the, by the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, up to his death in 2015. So don't think that I'm trying to run a smear campaign. I know that there are people out there that perform admirably despite those impairments. And this leads to um, some of those terrible things that I mentioned that the Joker did. And this is just stuff that I had never heard of because I wasn't a huge consumer of the comics. But in one line of the DC universe, the Joker becomes Emperor Joker, and he achieves um, reality-altering powers from another villain. And in this one comic, he proceeds to kill Batman and resurrect him so that he can kill him again for eternity. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is he used mind-altering serum to and injected... Um, Batman's fifth Robin, which also happened to be his son, and he forced them to fight to the death, eventually forcing Batman to kill his own son. And then in another line of the DC Universe, the Joker cut off his own face so that he could begin anew. Which, I mean, just the level of insanity, I would say insanity, and I know the book actually warns against using that term flippantly. It's become... Um, so salient that it's lost its meaning. But that has to be insanity, right? To cut off your own face. We're going to go with he ebbs and flows between psychosis and psychopath, um, psychopathy. And I wanted to read off this, this bit, and I know reading to people isn't why they came here, but I don't want to mess this up, and I think it's important the way he worded it. And he was discussing the fine line between um, sociopaths and psychopaths. And um, he talks about pseudo-psychopathy. 
which is essentially an acquired psychopathy. And he, he's, he begins by asking a hypothetical, what, what about a more permanent change to the brain? So he's referencing, hey, what if something happens to the prefront, prefrontal cortex? And he goes on to say, damage to the prefrontal cortex, particularly in a brain region necessary for the normal generation and regulation of social emotions, can impair emotional processing in ways that make a person look like a psychopath. Such individuals have already learned basic values, though, and the condition does not turn them into fiends. Rather, it shuts off emotional considerations, making them more callous and cold, where they just basically make these decisions based off the practicality. There's no emotion, there's no shame, no guilt. They, they just know that society expects them to behave in a certain way, and practically, they behave that way. But what if, and then this is another hypothetical, Hypothetical, what if the only thing that was preventing someone who already had those feelings of becoming evil, the only prevention was that the higher thinking of the prefrontal cortex? And then what if that's damaged? And he goes on to ask that final question. What if brain injury finally let one man's inner beast off its leash? Basically, he's trying to determine what happened to the Joker when he fell into that vat of chemicals. Was it... Was he a sociopath? Was he a psychopath? And I'm not going to continue to belabor the point, but the book dives so deep, and, and it goes into the relationship between him and Harley Quinn, and I thought that was one of the most interesting chapters. However, I don't want to tell you the whole book. I want you to enjoy it just as much as I did. So I implore you to get the book. I think it's a worthwhile read. I'm going to give it three out of five stars. Now onto the science and tech, and, and I wanted to go along with one of the themes in the book, and I think I'm going to start trying to do that, where some theme in the book I try to apply to science and technology as well. And the theme of dualism is the one that I mentioned earlier for this book, The Duality of Nature. And scientists, mathematicians, and everything have increasingly been more concerned with the theory of everything and M-theory and string theory, which are all feed into that theory of everything, where they can finally describe mathematically and scientifically all the forces that factor into the universe, not just on Earth, but also black holes and everything else, which it's been, it's been troubling, to say the least. And so there some subatomic particles, such as fermions and bosons, suggest that there are more than just the four dimensions that we can, we can perceive. And it seems that mathematically it checks out that that also is true. And this is a very popular theory. Many people do accept it. Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, among others. I love Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's why I bring that up. But there are also just as many people that mention that they don't believe in this theory. However, um, they are beginning to develop some mathematical equations to describe how this is possible. Negative solutions are possible for Einstein's special relativity equation, as well as Dirac's, Maxwell's, and Schrodinger's equations. And Schrodinger's equation actually utilizes anti-time in its calculations um, to get some of their solutions. Also, since no ground state seems to exist for matter, Dirac predicted that negative matter had to exist so that positive matter wouldn't collapse into a negative energy state. 
do I understand all of this? Absolutely not. But what I can tell you is that this, based off of what I've read, this suggests that we have anti-dimensions. So for the four dimensions that we can perceive now, there are four negative anti-dimensions that mim or mirror it. How do we get to 26 dimensions? There are several theories as to why. Some are, are that um, in the unraveling of the Big Bang, some of them, the strings, part of string theory, didn't fully unravel or on such a small scale that we can't detect them. In fact, the God particle, Higgs boson, like I just mentioned, um, the only reason we can detect it is because its atomic weight has to be there in order for atoms to behave the way they, the way they do. And this is according to a book called The God Particle that I've read years past. <clears throat> so, and this is one of the things that detractors sometimes would bring up with the, the duality of these dimensions is that there was a singularity at one point. Before the Big Bang, there was a single point. How does this jive with the multi-dimension theory? And it says... Also, an initial matter singularity would be balanced by antimatter being infinitely spread out in the opposite end of time. So a dual universe would allow for an initial singularity to exist with both a known positive, or sorry, with both a known position and momentum without violating quantum mechanics. So it's beginning to be fleshed out. I think it's an interesting thing to look into. I get my mind blown every time I try to read about this. Um, the God Particle book that I mentioned I think I would spend a day on about two pages, and it was because I had to research things mentioned. I am by no means well, well read on this, but it's, it's an interesting theory, and it's one of those things where you just want to sit and think about, <laughs> if you want to just sit and blow your mind, read about M-theory or string theory, read about... Um, Read about the redshift. The redshift is kind of interesting. These things are all factored into what these guys are trying to mathematically solve for these multi-dimensions. <clears throat> On to stocks. So as if I don't have enough books to read already, I got another book. It's called The Intelligent Investor. I'm reading a chapter a week because I also have the other commitment that I have for bringing you guys these books in totality. So this is just to try to inform me on how I could better strategize my investments. Um, this advocates for value trading, value investing. I shouldn't say trading, value investing. Uh, the first thing they bring up is the difference between speculating and trading or investing. Again, I keep using trading for investing, but he wants to to draw a hard line between investors and speculators. And he says speculators tend to not look at the documents provided by companies, um, their economic documents, and doesn't know how to, to process them and kind of just uses things like Wall Street bets or, or popular opinion or services on the internet to drive their spending habits because it's not investing, they're, they're just spending their money, and it's, it's actually been fleshed out in, in the 1960s, the average investor held a stock for three years at a time, and the most recent um, NASDAQ trading period, the average hold time for a stock is 20 days. So from three years to 20 days, there's been a, a notable shift 
and spending habits, investing habits on the market. And I would definitely look into this book. It's The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. Warren Buffett recommends it. Um, and anytime Warren Buffett, one of the richest men on the planet, suggests something, especially in the field that he's most known for with his work with Berkshire Hathaway, you got to give him some credit. So I wanted to start reading that book. I suggest it to you guys as well. I'm reading a chapter a week if you want to catch up. We can talk about investments and investment strategies. My workout challenge. Last one was a little involved. I had more people that actually did the last one, the really hard one, as opposed to the first one that I, I gave to people. Maybe I'm doing a better, better job at influencing people to do such, but the last one was a little hard. Yeah, I kind of I swung from one end of the pendulum to the other. So this one, I'm going to go somewhere in the middle. I've decided that I'm going to do a beer mile. If you're not familiar with a beer mile, pick a track, a quarter mile track. And before every quarter mile that you run, so before every lap, you have to chug a beer. So the way I'm going to do this is I don't leave that starting line until I've completed the beer completely. And then I begin my run. I think I'm going to score it the same way as last time, fastest male time, fastest female time, and then and maybe maybe I'll include a random draw as well. I'll think about it. I'll post about that later on Instagram. But that's what I'm going to be doing for this next one. I am the next podcast that we do is going to be with my friends Adam and Vince. We've figured out a way that we're going to tackle that. We're going to have all the equipment this time. It's still going to be on Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez. If you're late to the party, join in. It's going to be a good book. Uh, we already talked about it a little bit this last weekend, and we've got some funny takes on it, and I think you'll enjoy watching it. As for the winners for this last challenge, um, the, females, the female time was 101.51. And the top male time was the 101.24. So I'm going to gift myself with a book and a bourbon, I guess. And then I'm going to send off that other one. And then there was a random winner. I've already informed them. Uh, and they're going to get a book as well. So there's some incentive outside of just beating me to doing this. And I think the next incentive is um, I'm not sure I'm going to do bourbon and book anymore. I think I want to be more wide open with how I can attract people in, so I'm going to get a gift card, most likely to Target or something. Maybe GameStop? I'm kidding. Don't go to GameStop, man. But I'll probably get a gift card. And X, X dollars for, for now. I'm, I'm not going to commit to anything, but there will be some sort of reward for the people that place top male, top female with this beer mile. Now for the bourbon. Again, my favorite part. For this episode, I'm going to bring back my favorite from episode one, Blood Oath Pact 4. And then I'm going to pit it against an orphan barrel from the Stitzel Weller Rickhouses. So barrel that just got lost in the sauce. They found it 15 years later. 
and they bottled it, and it's called Forged Oak. And now, the profile for that Forged Oak, because you're familiar with the Blood Oath if you watched episode one, it's got an aroma of cedar, maple, and vanilla bean, comes in through with a palette of cocoa young berries, and then has a long, dry finish of black pepper, which is a very interesting combination to me. So I'm going to pour these up, and we're going to try them one at a time. So first, whoop, we've got Blood Oath. I remember liking this one a lot. A little bit heavy of a pour, but... Mama ain't raised no bitch. This is in the Atlanta National Golf Club. Oh, you can see just how thick it is. You see the residue it leaves when it when I slosh it around, but here we go. One sip, you know the rules. Man, it's just smooth all the way through. And, and I, I don't know if I told you this in episode one, but this bourbon, this Blood Oath, the pack, there's, I think there's six packs of it. This is pack four, and it's rated as the least favorite. I can only imagine what the other ones are, are like. <clears throat> On to Forged Oak. So Forged Oak, I feel like I'm doing a makeup thing, like, oh, here's the palette. Here's the palette. Forged oak, it's kind of hard to see. Fifteen years. First pop. This one's going in the Rogers glass. <clears throat> Light pour of this one. There's only so many orphan barrels of this, so I don't want to go crazy on it. Dry pepper finish, I'm not ready. The finish wasn't all that different. It was the palate. As soon as it hits that roof of your mouth, <clears throat> the berries. Man. Let me try Blood Oath again. I, this is for science. Ooh. You know? Okay. Blood Oath wins this one for me. The young berries for the forged oak. I don't know. I don't know if I'm a, bit, I'm a berry fan with my bourbon. I think I rated Blood Oath, I want to say four out of five stars in episode one. I should have gone back and looked, but I might need to upgrade it. I don't know. No, I'm keeping it at four out of five. The Forged Oak, I'm going to put it at three out of five. Maybe three and a half out of five. It's not bad. It's just Blood Oath is spanking its booty. And it's, like I said, the least favorite of the packs. I got to get those other packs. Hey, but I'm going to finish this off with you guys. 
thank you for hanging out with me. I always appreciate the feedback that you guys are giving me. Um, I try to incorporate changes, small changes into each one of these, these, um, these podcasts so that you guys see that I'm listening and I am listening and I do love receiving your feedback. So please, um, any and all feedback for this next episode. If, if you'd like to provide me with a bourbon that you want me to try and give feedback on, I can do that for you. I'm probably going to compare it to blood oath from here on out. And that's not fair. It's not fair guys but I'm going to do it because it's my show. Thanks again, guys. Up to it, down to it. Damn the man that can't do it. Fresh, pure, and energizing milk. Bourbon on the rock. Turn it on the